episode 31 of the Tactical Breakdown podcast. This is part one of three of our instructor's roundtable on officer-involved shootings. Here you go. Welcome to the Tactical Breakdown, a podcast for law enforcement, military, and emergency response professionals. Stand by. Where we help you bridge the gap and talk training, tactics, and leadership with the best subject matter experts in the world. Here is your host, Adam Kanakin. Hey there, welcome back to Tactical Breakdown. This is episode 31. It is going to be a three-part episode, just like we did the first time we rolled out the audio for our instructor's roundtable. This is from round two on officer-involved shootings. So this episode was uh, actually filmed live or recorded live on video at the end of February 2020, and this is the audio that I'm pulling from it. So it was a three-hour conversation. You're going to get this in three one-hour chunks for those of you who like to listen on the go. There's very limited editing in this, uh, so if there is pauses and breaks, that's why, because we're pulling this one straight from video. Before we jump into it, I want to just say thank you to you for being part of this show and thank you for listening and supporting what we're doing here. I hope you find it actionable. And if you do enjoy the content and you find it useful to you, uh, your training or your agency, consider subscribing to the podcast on your podcast player, whether you listen on an iPhone or you listen on an Android, it doesn't matter. Consider subscribing to the podcast. And if you want to check out our IRT live on video or be part of it, Go to our YouTube channel, Tactical Breakdown, and you can also subscribe there and listen to us live when these roll out every month. So let's jump right into it. This is the Instructor's Roundtable on Officer-Involved Shootings. Here we go. Hey, welcome to the Instructors Roundtable. My name is Adam Kanakin. I'm going to be your host for this panel. Today's topic is all about officer-involved shootings. Of course, we've compiled four of the top subject matter experts in the world, but before we get into introducing those guys, I just want to give a quick shout-out to our partners, Tactical Breakdown Podcast and Caliber Press. Now, of course, I'm the host of the Tactical Breakdown Podcast, and I couldn't be more honored to bring that to you each and every week. But we have partnered with our friends at Caliber Press. Now, if you don't know who Caliber Press is, they have been leading the way in law enforcement training for decades. They do over 200 live training events across North America each and every year and have put out publications, books, articles, and resources for law enforcement. They're top tier. You got to check these guys out. Go to caliberpress.com for more information on them. Now, let's talk about the roundtable. What is the instructor's roundtable? We've had a lot of people ask questions. Hey, what is this IRT? What are you talking about? Well, real simply, before we get into this, the instructor's roundtable is a panel discussion. We're going to do it over the next three hours, and it's a live conversation between four experts on any given topic. Of course, this week is about officer-involved shootings. The first IRT that we did was on use of force and defensive tactics, and we're going to be announcing the topics of the next IRTs coming up in the weeks after each release. So where can you get access to more information on the IRT and or the Tactical Breakdown podcast? Go to the breakdown.ca forward slash IRT 
or just simply thebreakdown.ca. You can get all the links, all the information, not only to the podcast, to the roundtable, but to our amazing partners and sponsors. So go check that out. So before we jump into the show, I do want to give a quick introduction as to who our panelists are for this episode for round two on officer involved shootings. So let's jump into that. Here we go. I'm going to kick it off by introducing a dear friend of mine and former guest of the Tactical Breakdown podcast, Mr. Chris Lusso. So Chris is a 32-year veteran in law enforcement. He spent over 20 years dedicated to the emergency task force as a tactical operator, team leader, and senior training instructor. His role as a senior instructor included major project planning, organizational interoperability, and the implementation of resources for joint special forces operations, and he has the largest engagement included over 44 tactical team warrants being conducted simultaneously. Chris's personal experience in officer involved shootings led to the implementation of a peer support program for officer involved shootings with his agency. The program is available across Canada and provides a direct officer to officer connection, focusing on mental well-being, post-incident investigation processes and inquest expectations. It's an honor to have Chris on the show. Next up on our panel is Laura Scary. Laura is one of the most sought-after defense attorneys by law enforcement officers and agencies in North America. A partner at Deano and Scary, the majority of her work has been in the representation of police officers, supervisors, administrators, and the agencies they work for. She has a unique perspective, having been a former police officer. Laura is a certified force science analyst from the Force Science Institute, Making the acquired knowledge that she has, including human dynamics in officer-involved shooting incidents, coupled with her legal and practical experience, she's one of the best in the world. She is the most proud of being trusted and called on by police officers and municipalities when it comes to legal representation for their officers within hours of them being involved in critical incidents, such as officer-involved shootings and in-custody deaths. Laura, thank you so much for joining us on the show. Stepping in to fill the next spot on the panel is Steve Nolan. Steve spent 37 years with the Philadelphia Police Department, the majority of that being spent investigating officer-involved shootings. In fact, Steve has been involved in over 800 OIS incidents as a lieutenant assigned to the Internal Affairs Division. He also served as the commanding officer of the newly formed Officer-Involved Shooting Investigation, or OISI, unit with the Philadelphia Police Department. That unit was tasked with conducting the criminal investigations of all OIS incidents occurring in the city and county of Philadelphia. Steve formulated the policy and operational procedures for the unit and selected and trained the unit personnel. He has been teaching OIS courses for the last five years for law enforcement personnel and agencies in Pennsylvania and New Jersey, in addition to consulting law enforcement in OIS matters. Steve, thanks for being here. And rounding out our panel is, of course, Jim Glennon. Jim is the owner of Caliber Press and co-author of Street Survival 2, Tactics for Deadly Force Encounters. In a word, Jim is synonymous with law enforcement training in North America. He's held positions from patrol officer to lieutenant. He was selected as the first commander of investigations for a newly formed DuPage County Major Crimes Homicide Task Force. Jim also has a bachelor's in psychology, a master's in police management, and has taught various courses for both law enforcement and private industry. He specializes in three fields, officer safety, communication, and leadership. Of course, it's an honor for me to have Jim and our, the rest of our panelists on the show. 
Jim gets a special honor of being able to help me announce the winner of our live giveaway coming up later in the show. So, Jim, thank you so much for being here. As you can see, there's a wealth of knowledge and experience, and I'm so honored and excited to have these four experts on the panel with us today. I hope you are as well. So without any further ado, let's bring the panelists on and let's jump right into this roundtable on officer-involved shootings. Here we go. All right, and we're on. Uh, a little technical hiccup at the beginning. That's awesome. Figured it out. We told you it was going to happen. So thank you all uh, for being here. Pleasure to be here. Very glad to be here, Adam. Thank you. Uh, glad to be here. Thank you for having me, Adam. Right on. Okay, guys. Well, so here's the thing. We have uh, 29 people live on the show right now. There's a few. I think there was about a dozen when we first started there. So half of them didn't see uh, see what happened in the beginning. So that's a win. Um, <laughs> <laughs> it is what it is. I knew. I called it. I knew something was going to happen. So um, obviously today's discussion is going to be on officer-involved shootings. And I think, Laura, I think you were going to kick it off and kind of just give us a quick overview of uh, officer-involved shooting incident and uh, what we're going to be talking a bit about today. So I'll leave it up to so you can go ahead. Okay. All right. Thanks. Um, it sincerely is a, uh, it's a great pleasure to be here with all of my uh, colleagues. Um, but uh, what I wanted to do was to start off by saying that whatever happens within the, the first 24, 48 hours uh, following an officer-involved shooting, um, that really is going to be the foundation for everything that follows afterwards. So whether an officer gives a statement right away, um, the video footage, everything that goes on within the 24 to 48 hours is going to basically be the foundation for um, the unbiased uh, in investigation that follows, the, uh, the criminal investigation, if there is any, of the officer, uh, the uh, possibly the administrative or internal affairs investigation that follows as well. So, you know, if, if we're all looking um, at uh, searching for the truth, um, then there are certain protocols that need to be taken, you know, within those first 24 to 48 hours. So that way we can accurately um, document and determine and search for that truth, whatever that truth is. Um, but it's imperative for for all of us to um, to follow certain protocols in order to ensure that the truth uh, uh, rises to the surface. Awesome. Well said. Thank you very much. There's a lot to unpack when we talk officer involved shootings. There's, you know, and, and I was really excited. And I know when I put all this stuff out to everyone on social media and when I spoke with all four of you individually, we talked Oh, it's really interesting how each one of you kind of represents a different aspect of an OIS incident. So obviously we have Jim on the more training side of things. Not that he doesn't have a vast amount of experience as an officer and, uh, and leader in his department. But Steve, you spend uh, a lot of your time as an investigator and in internal affairs, um, over 800 incidents. Chris, you were involved in an OIS incident yourself, and you're also representing uh, Canada, <laughs> so no pressure. And uh, and then Laura, obviously representing the the legal aspect side of things. So, um, really excited that we can well, like we can talk about all aspects of it. Um, let's uh, let's maybe start off by talking. Um, let's go from when an incident happens, right? The first thing when you know somebody gets called out, we're at a call and. Things happen, officer discharges his weapon, uses his weapon in an officer-involved shooting. What is the very first thing that they need to be doing or thinking about? So who wants to take that? 
right, like for the officer themselves, I mean, yeah. first thing obviously is, you know, self-care, buddy care, if you're with a partner, um, and, uh, in, in physical aspect of it, right? Make sure our, you know, our equipment is back in order, you know, check your, check your make sure it's not out of battery, et cetera, right? Come up with a plan to deal with your suspect. Um, these are things that have to flow naturally, right? It has to be very um, ingrained in a, in, a, in a manner that you're just on autopilot, you get these things done, but it has to be done safely. Um, once those rounds are fired, it's slow down time. Right? People just want to get ramped up and get in and finish doing it. It's time to slow down, take stock of everything that's going on, and then make some sound decisions because what you do next is going to be critical um, going forward in, in everything in, in your career, et cetera. Right? So slow it down, take stock of what has just occurred and what the um, – surrounding issues may be at this point, like uh, witnesses there, uh, potentially other victims, um, your your safety and, and well-being, your partner's safety and well-being, right? So before you move off, have a plan. Makes sense. Steve, what do you think? Kind of what Chris said, and it's a good thing you started with him, him having been involved in a shooting himself. So by the time I get there, I'm normally notified I respond to the shooting location. So now I'm going to have contact with that officer, just like Chris said. Uh, hopefully he's got a little opportunity to come down and to settle things down. And then I'm going to ask that officer for um, basically what we refer to as the public safety statement. Uh, and that is, hey, are, Chris, are we looking for any additional suspects for the safety of the public? Um, it, what are the parameters of the scene? You know, where do we need to block off so we can look for evidence? Uh, direction of fire. Can you tell me what direction you fired and what direction if the suspect fired at you? So we're, we can look down range and we don't have grandma sitting in her living room three blocks away with a bullet in her and we've never checked in that direction. So there's some of the things I'm going to do as an investigator when I first get to the scene. In addition to if the officer's okay, if he or she need any, any attention medically. Uh, but once that takes place, as kind of Chris alluded to, we want to slow things down, and now we're going to take our time and process the scene properly. All right. Yeah, so you know, I just want to on you know, like direct fire, anyone outstanding, etc. Like critical things that have to, their decisions have to be made. That that incident for the officer involved doesn't end once those rounds are fired. Like that's just that's just the the start of it, really. Right. So you're absolutely right. That's and that's where the training has to kick in as to what to do after these, right? Right. I, I, I'd like to ask a question to Steve, and I, I, this will kind of bleed into Laura a little bit. Steve, you did a lot of officer-involved uh, shooting investigations. Uh, when you were doing those, were any of your officers wearing body cameras at the time? Not until the last few years, Jim. And um, you know, obviously in Philadelphia going through a pilot program the last couple of years for certain districts, not the entire force. So up until the last couple of years, now prior to that, we did not have body cameras. So, you know, and what, you know, traveling the country and, and uh, interviewing all these officers have been involved in this. And I did some officer involved investigations also. And I was involved in a interesting, I was involved in a close quarters uh, gunfight after I was already with caliber press um, and been on the job 25 years. So a lot of things went through my mind that day outside of, just I was the boss. I was still running the homicide task force. A lot of things were going on in my head. But one of the things, Laura, that we're seeing around the country is, and Steve, that's why I asked you this question. 
those cameras are on and these officers are in such a state of stress that what we do internally mostly is we try to process what has just happened. What we try to do is one of the things we say in our class is the brain hates a vacuum of information. So we start to process what happened. I mean, even if we have an argument with our spouse afterwards, we're trying to process what just, what just occurred. But a lot of these officers now are processing this stuff out loud while their cameras are on. And I was curious, Steve and Laura, obviously from a legal standpoint, what, what do you do with the cameras? Because now, you know, as Chris said, it, this just starts the process because now that you're physically safe, we have to admit the next thing we're thinking, are we, are we going to be legally safe? Um, and there's a lot going on. There is a lot going on. Okay. Thank you, Steve. Um, You're a hundred percent correct. And uh, you know, unfortunately, and this has been a source of frustration for me as an attorney um, because for, uh, for whatever reason, we've got agencies that have uh, have decided to utilize body worn cameras, the mobile audio video systems in our squad cars, you know, because that's going to solve everything. Right. That's going to that's just going to show the truth when it really doesn't necessarily. And, you know, and, the, and really the, sto- the source of my frustration is we are using technology that we're only just now beginning to understand. Right. And so, you know, we've, we've got agencies that that have spent, you know, thousands, possibly hundreds of thousands of dollars on this technology. And then we're, we're requiring our 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 officers or our investigators to look at the video without understanding the scientific research behind that video and what that video means. And, and I'm not the expert to talk about that, but I'm just kind of, you know, just um, explaining that there are problems with having this type of technology in our police agencies without a complete understanding as to what that technology means. Now, getting back to your question, Jim, it's a really important question because, we have incidents where there are some agencies that do not um, have a program where their officers uh, utilize body-worn cameras, right? And then we've got our neighboring agencies that utilize body-worn cameras. Now, we all know that whenever there's an officer-involved shooting, let's say in, in municipality A, we know that officers from municipality B, C, and D everybody's going to come out there because they're, they're trying to help the, the municipality A. So assuming that municipality A doesn't have body-worn cameras or their officers do not wear body-worn cameras, but then all the, all the officers from municipalities B, C, and D, they have policies that require um, officers to, to, to utilize their body-worn cameras and to utilize them whenever they're I don't know. It depends on the policy. And we'll spend some more time, you know, talking about that, I'm sure, in the future of this uh, in this podcast. But what do we do with those officers who have policies requiring their their body worn cameras remain on while the um, an officer from municipality A is the one who was actually involved in the shooting? can, Can a supervisor from municipality A direct an officer from municipality B to turn off his or her camera, you know, because, and, and, and so now I, I would imagine that the question people may be asking is, well, what is there to hide? Well, that's not, we're not trying to hide anything. We're not. Okay. But we all know that um, an officer 
is a human being first before they are a police officer. And unfortunately for officers, when they're involved in a traumatic incident, and, and let's be real, and, and Chris, you can you can add on to this, but but sometimes our training, you know, uh, reverts back to just human instinct. And we may have reactions that the human being that, you know, are not consistent with our so-called training as a police officer. So so I guess what I'm trying to say is, you know, in 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 answering the question of whether or not an officer, you know, uh, uh, if he's involved in an officer-involved shooting, whether or not um, the body-worn camera should be turned off or continue to roll, that is something that needs to be explored by every single agency that has a body-worn camera policy. And then, and, and really, the verdict or the jury is still out in determining whether or what's the proper course of action. Do we keep the camera rolling while the officer is is going through shock or some other you know reaction to what he's just been involved in? And and for me, I don't personally know that. I just know as an attorney, you know, once I get a file, if it's a if it's a civil rights lawsuit or if um, if it's an internal investigation, I have to work with what I'm given. But if I'm the officer or if I'm the attorney that happens to be on the scene right away, which never is the case, you know, because I always get a call, you know, minutes or possibly an hour or so after the the case, you know, my first question is, okay, I I don't want my client to be talking to anybody because he or she may not fully comprehend what, you know, they've been involved in. So I know that I've sort of rambled on, but these are the issues that, you know, they're, they're tough issues to grapple with as, as law enforcement officers and um, with respect to our agencies. And, and before I, I depart to um, let my colleagues speak, the body worn camera policy, um, I've been involved in the crafting of policies for, for several agencies and uh, to include um, an organization that is a, a national organization that crafts uh, department policies. The body-worn camera policy, I think, is probably the most difficult policy to craft. Give me a pursuit policy. Give me a, a, a deadly force policy or a use of force policy any day. But there are so many ramifications that flow from the use of a, of a, a body-worn camera or a, a, a dash cam. And, and sometimes our agencies, were not, they're not thinking about the ramifications and the consequences that flow from, from utilizing this, what I think is a wonderful um, piece of technology. But we've okay. got to understand what that technology um, requires. So. <laughs> well, one of the things that I've I've, I've seen um, and experienced by talking to all these officers around the country is that, um, and then watching the media, and Steve, you know, you probably ran into this. Um, it, it, now things get out into the public so quickly, and the public has no idea what. And Laura, you and I talked about this on the phone yesterday, but the law, the the you know the whole concept of reasonableness as a police officer is different than reasonableness as a person. So we learn things like human performance and what happens under stress and what happens to your memory and all of this kind of stuff. But the, the public looks at a shooting as though it was on NCIS, you know, and it's right. black or white. It's this or that. And it, it, there are so many different uh, aspects of mm-hmm. officer-involved shooting that um, – and we you just said my biggest argument is that we just don't – we don't train. We don't write the policies the right way. Um, 
like you said about the body worn cameras, there's there's a there's an issue. Uh, I forget what state. Maybe you guys will remember this, but it just happened, and the, um, the the supervisor on the scene said, you know, don't say anything while your cameras are on. Now he was doing that to protect the police officers, not to hide anything. He knows mm-hmm. what happens after when you got ten cops standing around after a shooting, and somebody's going to say something that they probably shouldn't. And now that's on record, and it's hard to explain later on when you don't even remember you said it. Correct. Kind of stress. So, so. Well, that's a good point you make, Jim. I'll just touch on that a minute when you said about social media. This now we have a police shooting, and within minutes, ten minutes, it's broadcast around the world. Adam, I don't know if you have it in there that uh, little excerpt that I sent you, where it's a social media post that shows an officer on the uh, standing by a. Um, over a male who's on the ground. Did I send you that picture? Yeah, I'll um, find it for you. Just give me a second. Okay. And while he's looking for that, basically what it was was a, a police officer who was off duty, uh, heard a commotion outside of his house, which turned out to be a, an armed gunman robbing a woman. The off-duty police officer comes out, gives chase to the individual. The male shoots at the off-duty officer. The officer returns fire. The running gun battle for several blocks. And at some point, the male eventually comes to rest, succumbs to his wounds on a street corner, and the off-duty officer is standing over him, just training his gun on him, and he's on the cell phone at the same time calling 911, and somebody immediately posts, I just saw this cop shoot this guy, which they didn't. It did not happen there. But that's where police departments have to be on top of this. You you almost have to have a social media person in your police department who is monitoring everything that goes on. When you have a police shooting incident, you can get ahead of this to immediately dispel rumors, to get some factual information out there. Um, Again, it's like Laura and Jim both said, it's not that anything's trying to be hidden, but we live in a world where people put something out and that's, according to them, the gospel truth, when in fact it's not. Right. And everything can be taken out of context. And you know what? I'd like to stay on social media for for a minute in in the context of an officer involved shooting, because um, one of the things as an attorney, if I'm if I get the phone call, let's say, you know, five minutes after a a shooting incident and I'm on my way to 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 the scene, you know, my concern is the officer's safety, Um, because uh, obviously um, police officers just by the mere fact that they're wearing a department uniform, that makes them a target. It makes them a target. And, and you know, um, I, I hate to say that, but long gone are the days where, where police officers were respected by everybody. You know, and I understand that there's bad apples out there, but for the most part, you know, we've got um, a, a situation where, where police officers Authority figures are targeted just by the mere fact that they're wearing a uniform. So for me as an attorney, whenever I'm responding to a scene, I'm always concerned about the officer's safety. So hitting on what Steve said, hitting on what Jim said, you know, the social media, you know, we can we can live stream now. I mean, we're live streaming now as we speak. Right. So so in the event of an officer involved shooting, we may have people that come out of the woodwork They've got their cell phones. And then as the scene is unfolding, um, we've got people that are, are uh, videoing, you know, the incident. Right. 
And then it can be live streamed at that moment in time. So the concern that I have following an officer involved shooting is, you know, there are certain protocols, you know, if we've got agencies that are really, you know, that have a policy regarding officer involved shootings and what follows after an officer involved shooting or other critical incident, there are things that have to take place. And so one of the things that I want to talk about is, you know, the fact that while the scene is unfolding, while it's live streaming, we may have a supervisor that comes up to the officer in the immediate aftermath of an officer involved shooting and says, hey, your firearm is evidence. I need that firearm right now. Well, what do we do at that point in time? And unfortunately, I've been in a situation where I've represented police officers where a department had no department policy regarding what to do with the firearm following an officer-involved shooting. The concern that I have is obviously in this time of social media where everything is being live streamed, if an officer is now unarmed at that moment in time, he is he's just a target. And I'm concerned about that officer's safety. So... I'll give you a good example of this, uh, and I can go on a rant here. It, it, I've been traveling the country since in, in Canada since 1997 now. So you run into, you know, a lot of officers have been involved in things. And um, I've heard this, I don't know, maybe 10 times over the last 20 years that um, uh, officers telling me something to this, this effect, that uh, the very first officer who sh- supervisor showed up on the scene said something to this effect. Uh, you better not have fucked this up or you're going to jail. Hmm. First words out of right. their mouth. And I'll tell you, with the social media, like Steve brought up, uh, it, it, the perfect example is the Philando Castile case up in Minnesota. Hmm. The uh, the woman, uh, Diamond Reynolds, sitting next to Philando Castile, right after he gets shot, immediately pulls up her phone and is live streaming. I didn't even know there was any such thing as live streaming. Right. <laughs> live streaming this, which means the whole world's seeing it now from her perspective. And within hours, within hours, with no information, the governor of that state is on international television and says, without being asked, if this happened to, uh, would this have happened if the uh, passenger driver were white? I don't think it would have. So this kind of racism exists. So he, right now with no information, the governor of that state, calls Geronimo Yanez, a 100% Hispanic officer, a racist on international television with no information. Tell me that doesn't impact. And um, Yanez is is charged with second-degree manslaughter, and you knew that wasn't going to go anywhere. It didn't even make any sense. You know, that charge didn't make any sense. He purposely fired into this guy. And they they charged him with second-degree manslaughter. So he's found not guilty. And um, so, so he's free. But his life is his life is old because because of that. And so what we have in the Steve, it's always interesting to me. And I keep looking at Steve because Steve, Steve and I did these investigations. So you did many, 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 many more than I did that you you start getting some political pressure. You have people within law enforcement that don't understand the dynamics of a gunfight. Don't understand what's going on in the human performance science. They don't understand the acute, acute stress. They don't understand what happens right afterwards in terms of officers trying to process out loud. And and then Steve gets stuck with this, trying to explain it to four different you know levels of human beings that, no, I know it doesn't look good, but it's a good shoot. 
Well, not only that, Jim, and you're exactly right. It, it, then speaking to the family, that was part of the protocol that I set up. That if we shoot someone and certainly kill them, then I would go to the family and explain to them what the process is, answer any questions I could. And a lot of times, some I did not know the answer to just yet. But right, you have all that coming together at once. So you have a political people chiming in. Again, like you said, in that I think Adam found it, that little snippet of the uh, social media post. So you have something that's immediately going out to the whole world with somebody chiming in saying that, oh, yeah, I just saw this happen and this cop just shot this kid down for no reason and it didn't happen that way. No. So you're already you're already behind the eight ball. And now you're almost having to, I don't just want to say dance around, but you're having to come up with quick answers. And, and I understand, you know, administrators, the mayor, and those folks who are getting some heat from their constituents. But at the same time, it, it's like you say, and it kind of goes to what Chris said earlier for the Austin Wild Machine. Let's slow everything down. We're going to get all the answers. We're going to find out what happened. It's going to take some time. We're not going to solve this overnight. As Laura said, it's the first 24 to 48 hours is critical. But after that point, now let's just slow down and we can gather all our evidence, get all our video, our audio, uh, investigative tools, anything and everything we have. We're gonna, it's like coming to, to a puzzle that's placed and you're gathering all the pieces and trying to come up with a semblance of, in all likelihood, it happened this way. And But trying to do that while you have some outside input and often from people who don't know, the, as you mentioned, the dynamics, Jim, it, it's, uh, it's harrowing, right? Yeah. Steve, can I ask you, you know, with your agency, how many how many officers did you have in your agency? I'm just curious because I'm going to follow up with a question. About sixty five hundred. OK, because I, I like what you offered. And that was, you know, um, you were responsible for talking to members of the family. Right. Cool. Um, yep. But I will tell you. The, there's a number of officer involved shootings that occur in agencies of five sworn officers, 20 sworn officers, maybe 50 sworn officers, right? And so I love the fact that you were responsible for communicating with the family because oftentimes I find that in representing police officers in the municipalities in these civil rights lawsuits, it, it th- these lawsuits are due in part to the fact that the family wants answers. They want answers. And, sure. and and unfortunately, we've got a number of our agencies that just shut down and they hide behind something and they just don't want to talk, you know, and, 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 you know, I don't think the way that we've been doing things for years is working anymore, especially right. in this time you know, of social media. Right. So so the question that I have and, and, and really I'm intrigued by this because I think a lot of times if the agency would have communication with the family members um, that I'm not saying that that's going to stop civil rights litigation. It's not. Okay. Because we all know that, that civil rights litigation, I mean, it's, it's made, it's made some law firms, you know, very, very rich. Okay. Meaning, you know, on behalf of the plaintiffs and, and so on. Um, So we're not going to stop all these lawsuits, but, but there are a number of incidents and stories that I've heard from across the country where, you know, the families of the person who was killed by the police officer, they just wanted answers. That's all they wanted. Right. So I guess the question I have is what do these small agencies do then, you know, when they don't have a social media person, you know, at the helm, they don't have a body that's available to communicate with the members of the family. What do we do? 
And that's a good question. And my answer to that, Laura, is kind of like we, as we say to everything else, is be prepared. And when I do the, the training for these other agencies, and a lot of them are small town agencies, if you will, and, and I'll I'll bring that exact topic up. So if you don't have somebody, and a lot of times they don't have somebody who's media savvy, or they don't have that person who has who can do a death notification. So well, now's the time to be prepared for that. So even if it's a small agency. Maybe you have to ask stewards or, or look at your, your tech department. Hey, uh, Joe or Jimmy or Sally, can you help us out with this and walk us through what we need to do and get ready to get that in place? Because, as you said, it's the most unpleasant thing to do when you have to go to somebody and tell them, hey, one of my teammates, for all intents and purposes, shot and killed your son. But, but it's a necessary thing because we have to give them some information. And, I, and again, I can't give them everything because I don't know everything. And some things I'm precluded from telling them because it might come into play legally. Uh, but but I've always given them, here's, the, here's what I know. I always provide them with, here's my cell phone number. And some people will say, are you nuts giving them your cell phone number? That's no problem. I give them my cell phone number. Once they call me, if they do, I let them know, look, I, I may not always be able to get back to you right away, but I'll, I'll get back to you when I can. I've never had a problem with it where somebody's abused me. Maybe they will sometime, but I've never run into that. And as you said, Laura, it goes to diffusing, especially when we get to the lawsuit part, when we're to the check at times where we can at least knock a zero off. Well, I at least heard from the police department. Yeah, they did keep me informed. You know, Laura, I got I have, I have a, another answer to that, which is everything Steve said was great. Um, by us, and you know, we live in the same area. Uh, my department was about about 75, 80 guys in a in a pretty big uh, uh, county, right next to Cook County. But all over the state, I, I think the, the the answer I'm trying to get to is this: I think everybody should look at task force type mentality, because um, you know the task force in DuPage County literally started because Addison, Illinois, had a, uh, a homicide where you know what I'm talking about, right? I do. They literally kidnapped a nine-month-old, a nine-month pregnant woman, killed her, cut the baby out, mm-hmm. uh, stole the baby, and then murdered the uh, eight-year-old brother of this now uh, newborn baby. And the, the detectives were—they were literally hiring um, uh, patrol officers overtime to drive these detectives around. They couldn't drive their cars; they were so tired. So we developed this task force that started in about 1996, and I, I happen to be honored with being the first uh, investigative commander. But the point is, is that if you have people who are specially trained and we had two PIOs that were specially trained and the chiefs were all told, if you call the task force, the task force is in charge. You cannot talk. Mm-hmm. So the opposite of what you said, Laura, where, you, where too many departments just hunker down, then you got the opposite. And I think see, this happens in the bigger departments where you got chiefs out there not knowing what they're talking about. Yep. And they're going, well, we're going to get to the bottom. We're going to, you know, and they promise things or. They give the uh, uh, you know the inference that this is going to be a fast, quick thing, and then yeah. they're Steve going, you yeah, know, no, no, it's not. <laughs> it's not. Right. So, yeah. Either way, the agencies have to come up with like a crisis communication plan, right? Like every city has one for floods, tornadoes, hurricanes, whatever. Correct. They're gonna they got to come up with their crisis communication plan. So in that regard, the police departments should be able to come out with. A statement of something that yeah we're looking into it etc. Understandably, there are certain rules and laws that are going to dictate it. Up here, our department, you know, can come out with a, more of a 
a benign statement that is being looked after by the SIU, a special investigations unit, right? It's an independent body uh, by the province that investigates our shootings, right? Or any other uh, injuries, et cetera. Uh, and they look at the, any, their mandate is looking for any wrongdoing on the police. It's turned over to them, and then they have their own information officers come out and say, we're looking at this, and they give out, you know, limited amount of facts, but it out exactly, you know, what it is they're looking at. Or if it's more confidential, they pretty much give you that uh, blanket statement. We're looking into it. We'll get back to you when we have more information. And at least they're getting out in front of it, and it's not throwing up the wall and, and new information coming out, yeah. right? Um, in a, in a note of social, social we try to tell our officers, like, there's a lot of social media out there. You're always on camera, et cetera. And in that regard, stay off it yourself. If you're involved in something, don't be broadcasting. Don't be Facebooking your friends. Don't just get off of stuff, right? Because, uh, Laura, as you know, that's all going to be subpoenable later, right? Someone can do production orders, et cetera, and get all that information, right? Mm -hmm. And just you put it out to somebody else, you have no privacy to that. Someone else can screenshot it or get it from somebody else, and, and it's there, right? So right. If you're involved in something, just stay off the social media yourself. What, what we talk about in the class, our classes a lot is that training is probably, I, I believe the biggest systemic problem in law enforcement is the way we uh, lead our people in training. I really think that's the biggest problems we have. It's not that we're overly violent. We shoot too many people, all the statistics and research shows. We're not even close, close to what people think. But, it, you know, we wind up getting um, saddled with all, all so much little training that we, we do the minimum, the bare minimum. What I believe you should do is go over use of force policy about four times a year with everybody in the agency and say, look at this. Here, here's the here's the pre-shoot aspect of it. Here's the shoot aspect. But let's now talk about what's going to happen afterwards. Right. And, and and then these policies should have addendums, I think, rather than policies, which we call protocols, where you say exactly what you just said, Chris. Stay off social media. Don't be talking to your 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 aunt about this. Don't be getting a haircut and saying something just. You know, but also an explanation of what happened, what happened to the brain, what happened to the body, what will the stress do to you? Uh, don't don't be shocked that you're not able to sleep or you're rerunning this over in your head or you remember something a day later or you're confused. You know, we don't prepare our guys for that okay. aspect of it all. And, Steve, I'm sure you've run into that where guys are just staring at you. And one of the interesting things about these new body cameras, I've heard officers around the country say, when I saw the body camera, of my of my shooting, I, one guy told me I looked at the investigator and I said, "Yeah, that's not what happened." <laughs> <laughs> right. Which means that's not the way he perceived it. He didn't perceive right. it on a screen. You know, right. the guy's trying to kill him, so he gets this tunnel vision, and you know, and so when then they see it and they look at you know Steve when you're investigating, they look in the eye like they, deer in headlights, right? Sure, exactly. Yeah. So we we need to we need to prep them. For that, but more importantly, I just as importantly, we need to prep the bosses about this because you know I, I always say the same joke that you know almost everybody has a use of force policy, right? And that use of force policy says if you use force, you have to fill this out, and then the policy says a supervisor has to review this and approve it, right? So, but my my thing is, what special training do these supervisors have in reviewing use of force reports? You know, yesterday you want a sergeant. Last night, yeah. you put these stripes on your sleeves, and suddenly you became brilliant. So today, sure. we want you to give us your expert opinion 
<laughs> whether this force is good or not. And yesterday you couldn't have done it. Well, you know, and, and to follow up on that, Jim, um, you, you know, because I've, I've had situations where I've represented clients and, um, you, you know, in certain situations, um, you've got supervisors that are reviewing, you know, the the the, uh, the amount of force that was used, you know, whether it's deadly force or, you know, a taser, pepper spray, whatever the case may be. And, you know, and I find this. Um, in some of the administrative investigations that I'm representing the individual officers in. And so then, you know, let's say that uh, if we've con- completed the interview and, and typically I like to have conversations with, you know, the administrative heads because I want to know where they're going, you know, when it comes to potential discipline for, for the officers. And I can't tell you how many times I'm frustrated when I hear, well, that's not how I would have done it. That's not how I would have done it. And I'm like, well, who made you God, you know, and who made you the all important person, you know, as to determining whether or not, you know, the officer's use of force was proper or not? Because, you know, really, aren't we trying to determine, especially in an administrative investigation, aren't we trying to determine whether or not the officer's use of force fell in line with policy? Okay, so that's for the administrative investigation. So so it's not up to the chief or the sheriff or whoever to say, well, that's not how I would have done it. That's not the question that needs to be answered. Now, when it comes to a civil rights lawsuit, then the answer or the question is, was the officer's conduct reasonable? You know, and, and again, it's not up to whether the chief or the administrator would have used the amount of force that the officer used. The question becomes, was the conduct of the officer reasonable? So it's just you know these are these are kind of like uh, war stories um, that we're that we're telling, but these happen time and time and time again. And I cannot tell you the amount of frustration that I have when I'm representing an officer who, in my humble opinion, you know, looking at the policy, looking at um, uh, the case law, you know, the officer's uh, uh, use of force was was reasonable. It was within the parameters of the policy, and yet we've got administrators that are are calling for the, the termination of an officer because that's not how what they would have done. But I digress. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, and, and on that note, we, we look at, you know, the reasonableness, et cetera, right? But we have to look at it within the, the eyes of that officer, you know, that mm-hmm. statement of I wouldn't have done it that way. Well, I might not have. You know, I, I got, you know, 32 plus years, you know, my my time on the tactical team. I'm going to look at a situation, an evolving event, incident, completely different than the officer who's got a year on the job, two years on the job. You know, what's their experience at? It's not as simple as here, here's the stimulus, here's the response. How's the mic shoot him? There's a lot more to it than that, right? So for someone to say, well, I wouldn't have done it. Okay, maybe you wouldn't have. Other people may say, I would have done it sooner. Okay, uh, base it on your experience, your education, you know, your lived experiences, et cetera, and everything you've brought up until that point in time, right? We can't really judge it on what we know, you know, a second after those guys are fired doesn't have any basis in regards to what happened leading up to that, right? So it's based on what that officer knew at that time, right? And based on as we say, their perception. How did they see it, and how did they process that information? I've got a, I've got another thing I want to throw back out to the group here. Um, 
and, it, and it's it, uh, there is a difference between the, the four of us. Obviously, we have different experiences. Steve, you you know you're from a department of sixty five hundred, and I'm from one of, of seventy five eighty guys. But in a task force, in a, in, in the second most populous county in uh, in Illinois. But I showed up at an officer involved shooting one night, and when I walked in, um, and, and, it, and it, there's, there's a couple of questions coming out of this. When I walked in. Everybody knew who I was, um, and I knew the chief and the deputy chiefs. And the first thing I noticed is that they were um, they were going through the policy manual because they hadn't had a shooting in a while. So they're trying to figure out what to do. And so I met I met the kid who was involved in the shoot, and it was a good shoot. It was a good shoot. Um, the guy tried to run him over with a car, and the guy the guy had just shot his his wife in the face prior to that, and that's why he was being stopped by the officer. So I already kind of knew this was going to be okay. But the officer right away wanted to talk to me. He knew me. He knew me. I, I trained him to get at me. And he liked me, trusted me. So he wanted to start talking. And I told him, no, no, don't, don't, don't say anything yet. I want you to get an attorney here. And he said to me, he goes, you think I need an attorney? And I said, yeah, but not because I <laughs> did anything wrong. Because you're about to give a statement that right. is going to affect the rest of your life. Right. So calmed him down, got his attorney. And I knew his attorney, too. And I said, yeah, you need a couple of days to settle down. Don't be talking to anybody about it. You know, if you want to have a beer with he said he wanted to have a beer with his father. I said, great. Keep the conversation limited um, to anybody outside. Rest. I want you to get some rest, probably two days. And uh, I let him go home. Well, when I was letting him go home, the deputy chief, who was a nice guy, and I knew him, said, Jim, you cannot let him go home. And I said, why? He goes, he has to fill a report out before he goes home. <laughs> I said, well, he's, he's never going to fill a report out. I, I'm going to do the report after I in, interview him. And he said, no. And he showed me his policy. And he goes, look, it says right here, you can't go home. You can't leave your shift till you you finish your reports. And I go, yeah, that's a stupid policy. Get rid of it. I mean, you know, if, if a bike gets stolen, yeah, write the bike report, you know, before you go home. <laughs> but if you're going to have a complicated felony arrest, if you're going to have a use of force, certainly a shooting, why, why would you under that this kid under that kind of stress force him to give to give a statement, right? So then that brings up the other issue is, you know, now a big department like Steve's got. Uh, did you guys do regular training? The guys know exactly what was going to happen if they were going to shoot. And then what was your what was your uh, policy on waiting to interview them? So what we would do, Jim, is that. We would at some point get the word out to the officers, either through recruit training or I would do training at roll calls in terms of this is what will happen if you're involved in a shooting. And everything you just touched on it is exactly spot on. And I run into the same thing to the scene and I get that public safety statement from the officer. I'd say the same thing to them if they're very talkative. You know, you don't need to say anything else and you shouldn't say anything else. Now, John Q. Citizen hearing that would say, oh, well, Steve doesn't want him to talk. He's trying to hide stuff. Absolutely not. The officer is now the subject of a criminal investigation and he or she has rights like anybody else. And like you said, I know that night, whether it's a good shooting or bad shooting, not because I have, you know, I'm a soothsayer, but because I can see the facts. So I can tell, you know, where this is going. And, and I've, I've had to arrest officers, probably the most unpleasant thing I've had to do, but I'll do that if I have to, if they've violated the law. But that said, what, what we do, Jim, is just like you said, is if there are people on the scene and, and I've run into the same thing where you have bosses who think they know and they don't, and you just have to kind of gently tell them, look, it's better if 
don't do this or they shouldn't be doing that. And our policy is such that, that that is written in there that the only thing they'll be filling out that night, the only thing is any injury paperwork or to sign for their property receipt indicating that their gun is being switched out. We're taking possession of their gun. We're giving them a replacement gun. But they're not to fill out any other use of force reports for the same reason why we're not going to interview an officer 10 minutes after the incident because there's going to be so many things that they don't even know that they said or did. So we don't want them putting that to paper, just like we don't want them to articulate that verbally to us. And I, you had another question in there, Jim. I forget what it might have been. Yeah, what was your What was your policy on when did you you interview these guys? I mean, uh, okay. and that's a great question because having been on both sides of this from 1998 to 2016, when I was in internal affairs. I wasn't able to interview the discharging officer sometimes five months, six months, sometimes years <laughs> later. And here's why. Because under the old protocol, the district attorney's office reviewed everything related to the officer's discharge. And then once they looked at everything, they would give us the clearance. There's no charges, criminal charges, warrant against Officer Nolan for his discharge on such and such a date. And then I would put on that administrative hat and I would interview the officer. So five five months, six months later, I'm interviewing the the discharging officer, the most important person in the event, by the way. And I said to my bosses at times, why are we doing this? Why don't we just take a compelled interview from the officer? The DA's office can't use it against the officer in a criminal trial if they were to decide to charge him or her. And it was always the same answer of that's just the way we do it. Now, fast forward to 2016. When the DOJ said, listen, you need to change the process up here. You should have a criminal investigative team of select trained detectives who are the lead for every police shooting incident in an administrative investigative unit, Internal Affairs. The administrative side will take a compelled interview three days after the event, whether they all get good, good night's sleep, get, has a time to be stressed and come down. That was the best thing. So, 16. Could be five months, six months, sometimes a year. One guy was six years before the DA's office cleared him, and he died before we got a chance to interview him. It's a true story. Wow. There's, well, you know, um, sorry, real quick. There a lot. We got a lot of questions that were submitted prior to this, and I shared them all with one of you, with all of you. And one of the ones that kept coming up was um, with points to consider the failure to wait forty-eight to seventy-two hours before conducting a formal interview and the lack of interviewing skill by the investigator. So can, can does somebody want to talk on, on that maybe? Can I just, I, I want to mention something interesting because Laura, Laura could speak on this for probably the next two and a half hours. So we'll all get, <laughs> go get something to eat back. Uh, <laughs> um, uh, I'm an f- absolute firm believer in letting these guys settle down and having a couple of sleep cycles. But Judge Napolitano, uh, who I generally agree with because he's 5,000 times smarter than I am when it comes to the law. He, he balked at that when Dallas put that in their, uh, the rules and regs uh, through their union. And he said his, the words he used on TV were the general public doesn't get that same option. And I wrote him and not surprisingly, he didn't write me back. And I said, judge, you're a smart guy, but you're wrong in this case. And here's why, because the general public never, ever has to give us a statement. But if you're a police officer and you want to keep your job at some point, you know, you have to give a statement. So to to immediately within seconds uh, or minutes, compel an officer to tell you everything that happened. First off, you know, just physiologically, biologically, psychologically, emotionally, 
it wouldn't work. And we shouldn't be treating these officers immediately as though they're criminals, that they, they just committed a crime. Yes. So, so, but, you know, there is no real consensus and there never will be about when your memory is best because your memory is always going to have gaps in it. And that's, that's one of the issues with, with body cameras now is the body cameras have proven one thing and put all the studies out there. The off, we're not, we're not using force anywhere near the way that everybody thought we were using force. We're not. Washington Post says we're not doing it. We show all these stats in our classes. But the one thing that is happening is that these officers, when they when they make their statement, if they don't look at their cameras, there is always going to be an inconsistency in there. And then how do you know how do how do attorneys use that um, as though they're lying when they're not? That's just the natural the natural reality of your memory is not fantastic. I mean, the thing that we ask officers to do, if you think about it, is everything that happened in the last ten minutes, even not in the shooting, anything. In the last 10 minutes, tell us everything that happened in chronological order with full sentences of what everybody involved said and did is it's an impossible feat. So now under a shooting, under this type of stress, you know, I was in a, a close quarters gunfight in a hallway with three officers. One of the officers got shot. Uh, he survived. Jerry survived. But the three of us had very different perspectives of what happened and what was said in that hallway. Can I follow up on that, Adam? Um, yeah, because I think I think this is really, really important because um, police officers are treated differently from I think people in other professions, and and I think unfairly so. We give police officers now. I, I just have my citizens hat on. We give police officers tools to help protect the citizenry. Part of those tools is a firearm, tasers, pepper spray. Okay. We have um, in our transportation system, and, and you're going to have to bear with me because I am going to tie this up. We have a transportation system that consists of airlines, of trains, of automobiles. We have um, doctors that are given tools. They're given surgical knives to perform operations on people that have illnesses or, or whatever. So when officers use their tools that they're authorized to use, we treat them totally different from other people who are in different professions. We expect officers to give a statement right away. But when it comes to, and I'm going to use a variety of different examples, and again, I'm going to try to tie this all up. We have, let's say that we have um, an airline accident, okay? 190 people are killed because of a, uh, an airline crash. The NTSB will come in, let's say that it happens in the United States. So the NTSB will come in and they will do well, I, what I will consider an, uh, an, an unbiased investigation. They're just trying to search for the truth, right? Then we have um, a train accident. Let's say uh, an Amtrak uh, derails, killing several people that were traveling over the holiday. The NTSB comes in and conducts their unbiased investigation because they're trying to figure out what happened. Um, the Deepwater Horizon, uh, some of you may remember that, that was in the Gulf uh, uh, of Mexico where um, an oil platform exploded and, uh, um, you know, leaking hundreds of thousands of gallons of, of oil, you know, in, in the Gulf. And so there was an investigation that was conducted, right, following that. Uh, normally, when um, there is a death following a, uh, a medical procedure, 
um, there's going to be an investigation. But none of those investigations are criminal. But we have to label an officer-involved shooting many times across the country a criminal investigation. And I think it's safe to say that whenever an officer is involved in a criminal investigation, he knows that there are certain rules that are that, that apply. One of those rules is Miranda, you know, and, and that allows officers not to incriminate themselves under the Fifth Amendment, just like any other citizen has um, as part of their constitutional rights. Hey, thanks for joining us on this episode of the Tactical Breakdown podcast. Make sure to check out the very next episode, which is part two of our Instructors Roundtable on Officer-Involved Shootings. And again, if you haven't already, please consider subscribing to the podcast. Check us out at thebreakdown.ca forward slash subscribe for more information on that. And I look forward to seeing you next time on the show. Until then, stay safe.